Legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is lost cast, and may your ears receive it. Doesn't it feel like we haven't done this in forever? Well, we really haven't. It's been, I don't know. Two weeks at least. Yeah, we've had a lot going on uh, the past few weeks, and so the lost cast schedule hasn't been, um, at least for us, it hasn't been that consistent. Luckily, the episodes are still being released one week at a time, but yes. there's sometimes big gaps for us, and it makes things weird. <laughs> it does. I always feel like when we do two episodes in a week that the second episode isn't as good. It's like we gave all we had to the first episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we didn't leave uh we didn't leave enough energy for the way back. What is that from uh, Gattaca? Oh man, I love Gattaca. Such a good movie. I know. I found out just recently that that you're into that too. You were talking about it and I was like, "Oh wow, that's that's one of those movies I've seen like 10 times just, you know, it would be on TV back when I had TV, it would just pop on and like I had I had to just finish it." Yeah. Had yeah, to watch it. I never saved anything for the swim back. Yeah, there's so many good. I don't know. It's it just speaks to humanity and like the technology meets people. I don't know. There's something good about it. Yeah, and I really love movies where it's kind of like uh, how technology may have a negative impact on yeah. human beings in the future. Yeah, and I think that we've seen that today. You know, like a lot of uh, our listeners have said this, and like we've said it before. Like you sometimes get sick of being in front of the computer all the time. Like we love it. You know, we do it because we love it. We love computers. We love computing. We love technology and everything. But uh, sometimes you just want like a, I want to be around a tree. <laughs> you know, I want to be standing in grass. I want sunshine on my face. You want to get away from the technology. You know, I think that that movie in particular speaks to me because uh, I do believe that like discrimination is one of those core human uh bad qualities that you almost can't get away from oh certainly yeah um on that note i actually went to another wiggy wham last night i love saying that it's so fun wiggy wham it's one of the reasons wiggity wiggity wham wiggity wiggity yeah i really look forward to them just because of the name alone but it's the women in gaming international women and men (laughs) gathering (laughs) so it's just wiggy it's held by an organization called wiggy but anyway uh on that note it was like we were talking about how few women there were at an event even like that you know and it's it's inevitable that you'll talk about it uh, like wow there's only like 30 percent women here at a woman (laughs) women's international gaming or whatever thing right you think it would be like mostly women or at least half at least half (laughs) at least come on no, not so no, much. No, not so much. And, you know, discrimination talks come up and, like, the, the hostility. Like, there's this hostility towards women and just, like, the, the gaming industry in general is just very negative and has this kind of dark side to it, you know? Yeah. I think that uh, the gaming industry is just... can be hostile in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a, even as males, you know, uh, <laughs> you play online games and you get lots of hostility directed towards you. Yeah, it's, it's just very true. It's not a. Uh, it's a rather toxic place. It is uh, toxic for anybody. Yes. Yeah, that's a good word. That's kind of what I was looking for. You know, you play games like League of Legends or something, and then people are just, you know, they have no patience and they're very quick to just, you know, hurl insults at you. Oh yeah. Um, it's not f- beginner friendly. <laughs> no, 
Yeah, and the whole kind of game industry has that kind of underneath it. Even if it's not front and center like it tends to be with the more AAA, the more FPS type games, it's always kind of there, even if it's just background noise. Hatred, hostility. And you're like, why? <laughs> Aren't these supposed to be about fun? Isn't this supposed to be a lighthearted industry about entertainment? Yeah. No? Yeah, some people take it too seriously. Yeah. But Anyways, there are good sides to the industry. For example, refunds. For, for, wow. <laughs> Do you like was, that segue? That was professional. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Anyways. Refunds, though, they, they speak to like uh, the goodness in, in the company, you know? Like if you're not happy, because we always want people to be happy with uh, with their purchases, and if they're not, we don't we don't want your money, you know. Right. <laughs> if so, you're not satisfied with the transaction, specifically, you're talking about the fact that Steam just announced a change to its refund policy. Yeah, and that was just this morning, right? Yeah, as far as I was first, I've heard of it. We got an email as Steamworks developers uh, stating as such, but then I think it's publicly available as of this morning as well. Nice. Which, uh, so the, the basic gist is that if you buy a game on Steam, you have two weeks, uh, or basically you can request a refund if you've played it, uh, if you owned it for less than two weeks and you've played it for less than two hours. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder where they got those metrics. You know that they didn't just, you know, pull them out of their asses, right? <laughs> Valve, <laughs> like that's got to be based on, uh, on hard data. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that, that it must be. Two weeks seems like quite a long time, honestly. It does, but, you know, it's totally understandable. Like, you ever... Actually, I mean, just as we were talking about when the episode started, you know, it's been two weeks since our Lost um, lost cast, and then you were saying how, like, you feel like you've been in a hole for at least a week, and you kind of pop your head up, and you're like, huh? Like, what happened? Like, sometimes life just bulldozes you, you know? Like, you didn't see it coming for a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then true. there goes a week, and then there goes two weeks, and you're like, ah, oh, I didn't, like, you know, I didn't buy that game, or I didn't use that game at all. I, I think it's really interesting. I think it's actually a good thing, you know, because, you know, like you were saying, we never want people to feel like they got ripped off. And right. from Valve's perspective, the more that they can automate that kind of stuff, the easier it's going to be for them. Yeah. Uh, which means, you know, everybody's happy. So I think it's a good thing. And, um, you know, some people obviously are complaining about it, I think. Um, I saw a tweet this morning um, from a guy I follow on Twitter, and he was like, you know, to all the people complaining about, the refund policy you realize that piracy is a thing right (laughs) (laughs) so it's like you know people are saying like oh no people are just gonna like uh complete the game in under two hours in in under two weeks and then they're gonna ask for a refund and they'll essentially have played the game and 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 won't have paid any money for it and i think that's a little crazy uh they're saying that you you'd buy a game complete it in under two hours and get a refund right and then like you know you would have enjoyed it which is a pretty short game right Right, yeah. It is a pretty short game. It's a pretty short game. It takes a lot of dedication <laughs> to do that. And uh Yeah, if you were gonna do it, why wouldn't you just pirate it if you didn't want to pay for it? You know, you just much- treat it like a sprint, like, okay, here we go. I got exactly one hour and fifty nine minutes to complete this game and ask for a refund. Right. You've got like the form queued up, you're ready to hit submit for a refund, you know, and you're like, Okay, here we go. One yeah. hour. Okay, I'm halfway through the game. <laughs> yeah, it kinda it sounds absurd, doesn't it? That does that's it a bit absurd. Yeah. I think that's a pretty reasonable time frame both in the amount of time played um and in the amount of time that you've owned it those both sound fine to me like i don't have any complaints just like a immediate reaction you know yeah i mean neither i think it's fine um i i do wonder i wonder if this will help with like you know negative reviews i feel like 
I don't know if it would or not, you know, if That's, people yeah. who feel like they got burned on the game are more likely to leave a negative review. Yeah. And it might be in a lot of developers' best interests that if people can get their money back, maybe they won't feel the need to leave like a scathingly bad review. Yeah, what I really dislike is uh, like you have the right to write a negative review. That's fine. You can go do that. You know, what I really don't like is when we get like just a th- someone creates a thread like this game sucks. And it's just like very hateful. Like I don't even know what kind of text is in there. You know, there's the the typical complaints, the things that we ourselves complain about the game, probably right. But there's no point to it. You know, like a review, a user can feel empowered. Like I didn't enjoy that game. I feel like I wasted my money, but I feel kind of vindicated because I can put a dent in their reputation at least, right? Right. But with the just the comment, like that that's not really there. Some people might see it, but like we have the ability to remove it and it's like it's not backed up by anything. So it's just like them walking up like spitting on your shoes or something. I'm like, well, what's <laughs> the point of that? Like just get, take your money back, save yourself some time and move on with your life. Like do it through the proper channels or or just don't do it. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if uh, that's a response to Steam getting a lot more refund requests in the past. Uh, you know, so many months or years, you know, I wonder if with the, you know, opening of the floodgates, so to speak, with the green light and, right. you know, it may be objectively the bar lowering on Steam for the game quality if there's a lot more refunds uh, being asked for in the last couple of years. Yeah, I would bet there is. And I bet what they're doing is uh, like Steam probably or Valve probably had to do a bunch of hiring right to keep up with this because like look at their massive growth right it's crazy like they would have to been hiring like crazy and they're probably really eager to automate away the things that they're instead putting a lot of like manpower money into right like people fielding emails or people just like oh it's just manual refund process we got to log into these you know proprietary steam servers and blah 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 and it's like we could just automate that right Right, it's yeah. more expensive up front because it requires engineering and testing and all that stuff. But you know, at the end, it'll pay for itself and then some. I hope that they expose that data to us. I kind of skimmed the email and it seemed like maybe that would be the case. I don't recall specifically if it is or not, but I would love to see um, hopefully some numbers about the number of refunds that were given per per sales period as well. Yeah, that could become a metric that people care about. You know, you could like when you're talking to other Steam developers, you're like, oh, how many sales did you get? And how was the summer sale for you or whatever? And then you could be like, you know, there's, oh, there's this known ratio now. It's like this, what's your refund ratio or what's your refund percentage or whatever? And it could be like, you know, (laughs) everybody's got about a 5% refund (laughs) rate or something. (laughs) Like it could get uh, quite up there, but um, that'd be a good metric to know. You know, like if people are really happy with your game, hopefully they're not asking for refunds. Yeah, I also think that, you know, people are kind of lazy. And so it's not <laughs> a <are>. bad, <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad uh, policy to have in the first place because I think that only a small percentage of people will actually use it anyway. Right. Even people who are slightly unhappy with the game. You know, I think a lot of people, especially if they bought it, you know, during a sale for like five bucks. Right. Like, there's a lot of games I've bought at, you know, more than $10. Like, I think I, I bought DuckTales Remastered. Oh yeah, like right when it first came out. Yeah, right when I it first I came out. Too. And it was a, it was a pretty cheap. I think I got it. I don't remember. It was less than fifteen bucks for sure. Nice. And uh, man, I just mm, not not a happy not a happy fan of that game. 
Um, yeah, I remember your complaints. I think primarily it was like the um, the two art styles, the hand drawn graphics and the three D backgrounds, kind of uh, contrasted and didn't really uh, <laughs> like uh, complement each other. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I was having a conversation with a WayForward designer just last night, and yeah. uh, that topic came up um, because uh, he was talking about like you know a designer's role, and one of them was like consistency. You know, and zeroing in on where like the visual problems are, and I brought up that specific issue, and he was like, "Yes, totally, I completely agree with that. That needed a lot of work." You know, hmm. so they recognize yeah. that uh, at least not. <laughs> won't say everyone there recognizes it, but it is at least uh, recognized by someone internally. I'm sure. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, we've seen this when you put out a game, and even if you're a large team or a small team, you just can't always. Uh, do everything you wanted to do to your absolute level of perfection. Yeah. And so, you know, oftentimes all these complaints that come up about a game are things where the developers or the artists or whatever would go, I know we really wanted to address that, but we just didn't have time or didn't have the manpower or whatever. Man, that is inevitable. Seriously. Like that, that has like every single conversation I have with someone like after a game launches, like, you know, my brother, he's launched like, I don't know, probably dozens of games at this point in his career they're all triple a games that's more his his speed you know and uh he's got complaints or gripes or things he wanted to improve but just couldn't um with every single game and uh it's interesting to think about the ducktales remastered project because you know they had so many like external dependencies like you know oh well disney signed off on this look or you know, Capcom gave us the rights to do this or whatever. Like, there, there's so many different people who would probably have access to the rights or uh, at least be able to inform the direction of the game that right. they may have been like, oh, we knew about that from the very beginning. Like, that wasn't our decision. Like, that, that's a real possibility. Yeah, could be. Yeah, the, when you have that many chefs, essentially, yeah, uh, things get kind of murky. Yeah, exactly. Interesting, though. Yeah. So, uh, Steam refunds are now a thing, and that's great for us because we really just want people to either give us money and be happy about it, or take your money back and hopefully be happy about that, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, we, we basically just want everybody to be happy, and we, we never want to have someone's money that they, if they don't want us to have it. Does that make sense? So, it's like, we're glad that that's now a, a more um, seamless, frictionless thing for Steam users to do. And it's something, you know, like Steam as the payment processing platform should be handling anyway, you know, because we don't have to deal with it. Right. It's kind of like, hey, you're unhappy, go issue a refund. Great. It's like very open and transparent. It's better for everybody. So good job on Steam. Yeah. And hopefully um, all of these uh, Wizard Lizard updates will help people from wanting refunds, right? We hope so. Yeah. That's right. That was a segue opportunity, Jeff. Oh, <laughs> Work I'm, with me. I missed it. <laughs> All these are wizard lizard updates. <laughs> cough, cough. Point at you. <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. See, I yeah. can't get your like you know body language over over the. I internet. know we need a. Uh, well, actually, we're going to have a local cast this month. I'm going to come down to San Diego, and then I'll be able to elbow you in the ribs. Right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what? Oh, segue. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, wizard lizard <laughs> updates. Hey. Speaking of the Wizards Lizard updates, Matt. Yeah. Um, we've been making updates to Wizards Lizard, so we'll just quickly kind of talk about some of the things that are live and, and are going to go live at some point. Now, uh, it's 2.4 currently, right? It's 2.4 currently, and the last push we did added a lot of achievements to the game. Yay. Which was kind of fun. Probably something we should have done earlier, but, you know, hey, better late than never, right? Yeah. Um, which was a lot of fun. I think we're going to keep adding those. 
Yes. Um, just because we like to, uh, we just can't stop tinkering with the game because we're terrible. It's <laughs> <laughs> one way of looking at it. Another That's one way, way is is that we love it. And we love our users, and we and want it, to it provide like, them as much it, value as possible. Yeah, and it's it's also fun because it's like the easiest way for us to do something and bring value to people quickest. You know, like the stuff we do for the next game, uh, players might not be able to actually benefit from that for months and months and that, years. <laughs> year, oh no, <laughs> no, you're planning for years. But you know what I mean? Like you can be doing something today, and in just a matter of days, players can be enjoying it, and that feels good. It does. That feels great. Yeah. Um, also, it kind of gives us a way to the things that we don't like about the game. We can kind of test um, very quickly solutions to those problems and then use that knowledge going forward with similar games. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. So 2.5 is coming up soon. Um, and actually, 2.5 I'm really excited about because um, I've done a lot of work on the dungeon layout and generation oh i'm and so, so eager for that the basic premise is is the same you know the the basic idea of the game is going to be the same but the dungeon layouts and the room connections are going to be a little better and more interesting and the way that i've um used uh heuristics to put the rooms special rooms in the dungeons is going to be a lot more interesting um basically the the big thing that i'm working on is making it less static so right now there's a few kind of constants where in level one, there's always going to be the grave room. Uh, sorry, cemetery one, there's always going to be that grave room where you get the lance. Right. And uh, in cemetery two, there's always going to be a pentacle and there's always going to be a health shop. And in cemetery three, you know, so on and so forth, there's these very kind of static th- rooms that are always in very specific floors. And so what I've done actually is I've taken all those special rooms and I've put them in like a zone wide bucket. So, for example, in the cemetery, there's going to be a hostage, a blueprint shop, uh, some number of shops, some number of pentacles, and uh, some number of quest rooms, including like the green key room and the lance room and those kinds of things. In all of the cemeteries? So, cemetery one through three? Yeah. So, across all three of those. And each floor has some number of special zone-wide rooms. Right. But it's going to be randomized per run. So, for example... In a given run, in Cemetery 1, you might see the Blueprint Shop and, let's say, the Green Key. And then in Cemetery 2, you might see the Lance Room and a Hostage Room. Right. And then in Cemetery 3, you might see you know some of the other ones. And then the next time you go through, um, those rooms will be in different places and different floors. So, how did you address the problem of there are certain quests in the game? Like, uh, I think primarily the ones uh, having to do with unlocking the characters, the playable characters. How did you make sure... Because those have multiple steps, and sometimes those steps will be like you have to do something in the cemetery that you then have to take that item to the sewer, you know, and then using that, you can do something in the crypts. Like, how did you fix that problem of, like, there being... Uh, dependencies on you doing this step and making sure that like you know step two (laughs) didn't come to you before step one and so you just can't do that quest right so uh, that's a good question and by and large most of the quests kind of fit this model where it was like something in the cemetery something in the sewer something in the crypt right and in that scenario it, it works out just fine because i didn't randomize the rooms across the entire game i only randomized them across each zone right yeah so for example um 
the uh, Moto Quest line, um, there, there was an issue with a couple of them. So, like, the Moto Quest line actually was uh, one of these quests where step two and three were in the crypt. And right. that was an opportunity where, depending on the randomization, you could get step three before step two. Right. Yeah, so, what you... I did is I just pulled the second step into the sewer. I see. So, as long as the steps kind of go by zone, it doesn't matter where in the zone each of those steps appear as long as, you know, they appear within that zone. And so really yeah. that's the kind of solution to that problem is I just um, basically made each of the quests more consistent in that there's a step, you know, usually in the cemetery and then in the sewer and then in the crypt. Um, in some cases that first step ends up being in the forest. Right. Just because of the way we've designed the quest, which is okay too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the basic gist is that you just can't have multiple steps within the same zone, um, which seems like a limitation at first, but I think it's actually more consistent and better design anyway, because yeah. especially with the moto quest, it's like you got first step in the cemetery and then nothing in the sewer. And then you get two steps in the crypt and that just feels a little overloaded. Yeah. So I was actually doing some live achievement hunting a couple of weeks ago on our, on our Twitch stream. And, uh, I, I had to have, like, I was kind of cheating. I had, like, little notes about um, <clears throat> where to go in each quest, you know? Yeah. And it, it really gets confusing when it's like, this is going to be in Cemetery 1 for sure. This is going to be in Crypt 2 for sure. This is going to be in Crypt 3 for sure. And, like, that having to know the order is a little awkward just with the way we've built the game because there's nothing readily apparent about uh, the difference between Crypt 1 and Crypt 3. You know, we just didn't make the game that way where you can just look at it and be like, I can tell I'm in Crypt 3 because it's, you know, bloodier and these monsters only appear in Crypt 3 or whatever. So the way to know is to constantly be kind of like pressing pause and looking at the map. Like, oh, which Crypt am I? Oh, I'm in Crypt 2. Oh, okay, I thought I was in Crypt 1. That's good to know. You know, like that's kind of a, that's that's weak sauce, right? Having to do that. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think that the new direction also promotes more exploration, you know, because uh, if you want to do a certain quest, like let's say you wanted to do the Moto quest line, what you would do is you would go to um, the lance room in the cemetery one, you would get the lance, and then you would just blow all the way through as fast as you can to the crypt two or whatever, where the next step is. Yeah. Um, and in this scenario, it's more like, okay, you go to the cemetery, you have to explore maybe all three floors of the cemetery until you happen upon the room. Yeah. Then you have the lance, then you have to go to the sewer, and then you know in the sewer that step two can appear anywhere in the sewer. It could be on one, two, or three. Yeah. Um, and I think it makes it a little more interesting, uh, especially when you put together the optional zones, right? Because that makes it a little more um, risky, perhaps. Um, like, okay, do I go to the forest? Do I go to the Den of Thieves? You know, in, in the current version of the game, like you know what you're going to be missing, right? Yeah. So if you know, okay, if I go to the forest, I know that I'm going to miss this health shop in cemetery two and whatever else. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, not that great. Now it's going to be more like, well, I might miss that green key if I go to the forest in this run. So, you know, does that matter to me or whatever? Yeah. It's just better harmony too. Right. Because like we put all this work into making the game replayable and to making the runs feel fresh. And then we added these kind of static quests Right. Or it's like, oh, you just really want to get to, you know, Cemetery 3. And everything else is random. Like, uh, how you get there is going to change. What kind of monsters you see on the way is going to change. How many shops and treasure chests and all this stuff is different. But it's like, it's always in this 
kind of guaranteed place and that just doesn't marry well with the rest of the game design yeah anyway so i'm, I'm really excited about 2.5 because i think that'll be too. a lot of fun yeah i think that'll make uh streaming the game better i think it'll obviously make playing the game a lot better and more uh, interesting like you were saying and uh that's actually in the like i, I need to be testing that um that's the thing is like i i failed to stream uh last week i just wasn't feeling it and um that's the thing too is it's like hard for me it's hard enough for me to sit down and get myself to play a game right but then to like play um like a untested version you know like i really need to sit down and play a wizard lizard just the local like dev version for like two hours you know that's like hard i need to actually like force myself to do that right <laughs> but like it needs to be done it does actually i would love your feedback on some of those changes yeah i know you're waiting on it i just uh like i said it's, you know you're a terrible developer <laughs> that's uh really what else can you say what a, what a hard job we have right when it's like oh man i gotta play this game for a couple of hours well when you've played that game for hundreds of hours already <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah i think even at this point like playing splunky for two hours doesn't even sound good to me no i've put like 100 hours into that one or something but uh on a more technical note um, one of the things that i've improved um with the dungeon generation or, or a tool that i've used to improve the dungeon generation is uh heuristics and so the way that heuristics kind of works is that um it's kind of like a, a fuzzy logic it's like a way of um you know essentially scoring things and using the highest score um where it may not be the best option or it, it's the best option when there isn't a clear concrete way to go right um it's also good when you want a little bit of randomization um just because you can assign things scores based on uh, some kind of randomization properties but kind of weight things in a certain direction and so one of the things that i've done well let me back up real quick the the way that the heuristics works in this kind of a context is that um let's say you're choosing where to put a room you know in this right. case it's going to be like where in this dungeon do i want to put the pentacle room and you have a list of rooms that are possible candidates and then you can score those rooms based on some criteria right how far away it is from the start how close it is to other rooms uh how close it is to the boss room is it a dead end is it not there's all kinds of factors that you can use um to score these rooms and then order them by the score and then pick the best option uh, yeah. for that particular room this is funny. I, I just, I Googled define heuristics. <laughs> it's like the most worthless definition. <laughs> a heuristic process or method. Thanks. Oh, oh good. <laughs> the study and use of heuristic te techniques. <laughs> what? You're not telling me what it actually means here. Um, here. Here we go. Is any approach to problem solving, learning, or discovery that employs a practical methodology not guaranteed to be optimal or perfect, but sufficient for the immediate goals? That's really vague and abstract, isn't it? It is, uh, but that's pretty pretty accurate as to how it works. It's essentially saying, like, you know, you you say I want to pick a room to put this in, and if you were designing this map by hand, it would be really easy to say, well, clearly, like the pentacle should be over here in this corner, right? Uh, because blah i think that the best way to uh help programmers and you know our, our, our more logical um listeners uh who haven't heard of the term uh, to understand it is it's what's often used for chess algorithms right because that can be a really baffling thing um is like 
where should the artificial intelligence move? Like the like, what what move should I make? And there's like, well, there's a uh, nine hundred million different options. Right. And you're like, ah, oh, geez, like which one is the best? And uh, very often, uh, those chess AI programs will use uh, heuristics, and they'll be like, well, the bishop, you can take the bishop, and there's really no downside, so do that because the only other thing you can do is a lot of nothing, <laughs> or you could like take a pawn or something. So it's like you put a higher weight on the more valuable chess pieces, like that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I think another good example is A star, which is a pathfinding algorithm. Yeah, and the way that A star generally works is that uh, you start from a start node and you have a goal node. And you keep adding, essentially you have this list of open nodes that you're looking at for comparison. And uh, you can assign those nodes a score based on how close they are to your goal um, and how many steps it took to get there and things like that. Um, And then essentially what happens is that A-star will prefer, you know, going down the route um, of nodes with the highest score or lowest score or whatever, you know, however the algorithm happens to work. A-star is one of those things that um, you knew about and I didn't know about. And it made me feel inadequate. Really? Because <laughs> you were just talking about like, oh yeah, I just need to use like an ACE algorithm. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I need to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw it and I'm like, oh cool. Like just pathfinding. It shows you how to get from A to B with various settings and stuff. And I'm like, how perfect is that? That has so many uses. And the interesting thing about A-Star is that it's, it's pretty simple at its core, right? Yeah, it is. The basic algorithm is really just start at a start place and add all of the neighbors of that cell to a list of things to evaluate, evaluate them and give them a score based on your heuristics. Yeah. And then, you know, rinse, repeat until you found the path with the best score. Yeah. Right. Which is usually the lowest amount of moves to get from A to B. I think of A star in the same kind of ballpark as I do with tweening where you don't, if you don't know about it, it can look very kind of baffling and intimidating. Right. But then as you look at the underlying, like, how does this actually get implemented? It's pretty simple. It's pretty logical. It's like, there's some complicated math with tweening and stuff, but like what it's actually producing is very simple. So it's like, I don't feel like you even need to know all that much to kind of feel like you have mastery over tweening and something like pathfinding, you know, with just some simple logic. Yeah. It really just kind of comes down to uh, like the algorithmic part of A star where it's like, you know, you have this bucket of nodes that you want to look at and then you assign them a score based on, you know, this criteria. Yeah. Um, and anyways, it's actually pretty easy to put into practice yourself too. And so in the instance of, you know, Wizards Lizard Dungeons, um, my criteria tends to be, uh, in this particular instance, it's like how far away from the start node is it? Because the reason I like that as a piece of criteria is because um, it kind of promotes... Um, giving a higher score to things that are farther away from the start, which yeah. I think is good because it kind of like promotes exploration. I remember before you implemented that back when the game was Crypt Run and it would be like you start off the dungeon like you normally do and you go to the left and there's the boss room. Right. <laughs> and you're like, that's that's a bit too soon. <laughs> a bit, yeah. <laughs> a bit. We need a little more dungeon in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Um, so that's like one signal. Essentially, like I like to think of it as signals. Which signals do you care about? Right. And so one signal for me is is how far away from the start is the room. The second signal is, is it a dead end? Because I like to put rewarding or interesting things in dead ends. Yeah. Um, Because I feel like when you get to a dead end, um, it typically means you have to turn around if it's not the end of the dungeon. And so it feels like it it needs um, 
something to make you feel like okay well this was this is worth it like either there's a chest here or there's a quest item and, and even if you don't necessarily need that particular quest it still kind of feels like it's not just like okay i got to a dead end there's a bunch of monsters and nothing in here yeah so like the thing with a game is like when you get to a dead end it can feel bad and you're like Ugh. And especially in the current design, like the live des- version of a wizard lizard, uh, a lot of those dead ends are, there's no harmony between the other wings. We were talking about this just recently. There, you, there's no option for you but to backtrack, right? And so it feels like like a jerk move from the designers because how trivial is it for a game designer to be like, here's a dead end. You know what? You get a chest. You came all this way. Like the, the whole thing behind video games is to give you positive feelings and make you enjoy your experience. And that's such an easy thing for the game designer to do in this context, right? Right. So like, give me give me something. Like I came all this way. I got to this <laughs> dead end. <laughs> Throw me a freaking bone. Yeah, help me out here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, like I think that. that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then one of the, so those are signals that are actually being used right now, but they're not being used as effectively as they could. Um, and I actually added another signal very recently that I'm pretty happy with which is the proximity to another room with uh, a special room in it already. Oh, nice. And so what that does is it actually forces the... And, and so I did... I, I assigned that a very high negative score. Almost Heuristically, you mean? Heuristically, yeah. Yeah, so like it wants... So special rooms want to avoid each other is what you're saying. Like really badly. Yeah. Uh, so like, for example, um, you basically get one point for every... Uh, room you are away from the start. So if you just use that signal, all of the special rooms would just be clustered at the farthest reaches of the dungeon. Nice. Um, Then if you use the dead end, so the dead end gives you another small bonus where it says, okay, you know, if you're far away and you're a dead end, then you're preferred. Um, But this new signal also makes it so if you have like a long kind of dead end branch, you don't get like special room, special room, special room, all the way along that one corridor. Yeah. And so I signed rooms that are bordering. So uh, any available room that borders another special room gets a huge negative score. Almost to the point where, so what happens is it causes the special rooms to be like distributed throughout the dungeon a little more evenly. Yeah, it was actually the last uh, live stream I did where uh, I think I saw this twice in that one stream, but it may have been other streams. Anyway, it was a shop right outside of the boss room. (laughs) Right, yeah. Like, oh, hey, death is here? Sure. That's a lot of commerce happens near death. Let's do this. (laughs) So so this heuristic uh, solution would solve that problem, basically. It will, because not only um, does it assign a negative score to rooms that are bordering other special rooms, but I mean, I guess that's also a special room. Right. Um, so, like, essentially what I don't want, right, is I don't want shops to appear right before the boss or really any special room right before the boss. Yeah. Or to have, like, you know, pinnacle shop, key, uh, blueprint shop, like, all in a row. You just want a standard room before a boss encounter. Well, I really just want things to be spread out. You know, it's, yeah. it's still random, so there's, there's going to be cases where things are closer than you might like just because of the way the dungeon is laid out in that particular instance or, you know, the number of rooms versus the number of special rooms or, or what have you. But, you know, by and large, on a kind of high level, I want to make sure that the special rooms are as kind of spread out across a dungeon as they can be just to promote exploration. 
Gotcha. So when I've implemented systems like that before, a problem that I would have is I would kind of blow the options uh, out of the water, right? So I'd be like, you know, the map is going to be randomly generated, so you don't necessarily know for sure that everything is going to be nicely branched out and separated from each other, right? So there could be these two pathways that are pretty close, and the heuristics might say, like, I don't want to be in this room. And, you know, the way I've written the code in the past sometimes would be like, it's not even an option for me to go here, right? But then there's no option, and so the like the game will crash. Basically, the code will be like, "I want to put this room somewhere, but you know, your heuristics are telling me that there's there's nowhere good, and so I've got nowhere to put it, and I'm just going to crash." So is, is that a possibility the way you've done it, or is it more like, you know, I really don't want to go <laughs> into this room, but I don't have any other options, so I guess I'll settle. Yeah, it, it's it's the latter. Gotcha. Basically, cool. it takes all rooms, all available rooms that could possibly be used for a special room. And it ranks them by this criteria. And then, you know, basically, if it has no other option, it'll put it where it can. Gotcha. And so, like, the the least preferable rooms will be at the bottom of the list. And, you know, uh, if there aren't any other options, then those rooms will be the only thing in the list. And, and they will be forced to be picked. It's pretty interesting because there's actually a lot of this uh, kind of behavioral code going on with uh, the individual rooms. There's some heuristics there, right? Where it's like, you know, I uh, want to spread the traps out or we'll have the ability to say, like, we, we place these hints like, hey, a treasure would be great here if you've got it. Like, I'll put a hint here. I like, that's the same kind of heuristic approach we have in the individual room generation, right? Um, not as good as it could be. Um, there's a little bit of that going on, like you said, with the hinting. Yeah. But the way the hints work right now is the hints are essentially a bucket. So in a given room layout, we'll say, uh, here's all the spots in this map where we think that traps would make sense. Yeah. And that's just a big bucket. And when it wants to place traps, it'll say, you know, okay, I'm going to put 10 traps in this room. And so I'm just going to randomly pick 10 spots from this bucket and put traps down. Nice. It doesn't uh, do what I would want it to do, ideally, which would be to basically re-rank all the spots every time it places a trap. And so that's yeah. what it, what the dungeon generator does now, is that every time you put a room, it re-ranks all the rooms uh, to account for the fact that there's this new room that's been used. And so that's how it's able to say, well, I know I just put a special room here, and so now all the rooms adjacent to the special room have a lower score uh, in terms of being picked for another special room. Gotcha. And so that's something that we would want to do uh, with like the trap layout as well, right? Is that you would want to say, okay, I put a trap in the, like, the upper left quadrant of the room and all of the adjacent tiles to that trap now have a penalty. Yeah. And so what would that would it fix is it would fix these issues where like there's like say a button that you have to press to open a door and it's behind like a wall of three spikes. Yeah. Just because the way the random generator works right now is it says, hey, I'm just going to pick X random spots for spikes. And it's probable, you know, that those could be all clustered in the same area because it's just random. There's no heuristics there yeah. that would say, well, I'm going to give you a penalty for st spots that are already adjacent to a spike. I'm kind of picturing Minesweeper in my head, you know, where you, you like put down a tile you select it and it'll clear an area and it's like ah, over here like within n number of tiles is something that you don't want like a spike or a bomb or whatever right same kind of idea pretty much i mean well, all you can do basically is you can have like a map um a matrix of like a xy coordinates and you can have that be integers and you can assign a score to each of those things and they can all start off as like a score of you know 
zero or a hundred, or it depends how you want to structure your heuristics. But yeah. essentially, you can all, you can give them a score, and at your first pass, all those numbers are going to be the same. And so you might say, okay, take all the tiles, order them by their score, uh, which are all going to be the same. Pick the top one and put a spike there. Nice, yeah. Then you re-rank them, and so all of the tiles that were then close to spike, you could even say all tiles within, you know, three tiles in a circle of the spike have like uh, a tapering penalty. So you could say if you're within one tile of a spike, you have negative 10 points. If you're within two tiles of a spike, you have negative five points. If you're within three tiles of a spike, you have negative two points. And then beyond that, you don't take any penalty. And so what that'll do is that'll make it so it prefers things farther away from existing spikes. That sounds great. It does, yeah. And it's actually not that hard. I mean, that would take really just a few hours of work um, to implement in a game like a Wizard's Lizard. Wow. I'll just uh, pull open the project here and make a <laughs> ticket for you. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm a, the, I'm a little sick and horsey. The horse has appeared. That's right. It's been a, a wild while. horse appears. <laughs> Much more horse coming in this episode. Uh, so is is uh, is that the biggest update coming to version 2.5? Yes. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. So all that stuff I was talking about with trap placement, I haven't actually applied any of the heuristic stuff to the trap placement like I was just talking about. But right. that's something I would like to do. I think that for 2.5, I might just focus on the dungeon layouts and uh, kind of attack that from the higher level. Yeah, and that's more important, I think. May, yeah, maybe in a, in a subsequent update, I might do some stuff to the room generation. Um, I kind of got off into the weeds a little bit. I was prototyping some other stuff with kind of the micro room generation. <laughs> and uh, I started doing some stuff where um, basically it would pick only a couple different types of monsters to be in a room hmm. um, and traps. Because right now, some of the generic room generators, as I call them, what they do is they pick like... Um, several different types of monsters several different traps and so you end up with these rooms where it's like okay you've got an owl and a barrel and a spike and webs and a spike trap and a bat and a great owl and a zombie and a goblin (laughs) and like that gets a little overwhelming i think it's a cognitive overload yeah and i think that it doesn't um i don't know it it doesn't promote this like kind of understanding of the game as well as it could Whereas I think that, you know, um, it kind of just feels like chaos, right? Yeah, it does. And I think when things feel unfair and players complain that it feels cheap, right? I think so. It didn't really feel like my fault. Like I took a bunch of damage and it was just because of this mass of crap you guys threw at me. It wasn't because I felt like I made a mistake. And all of those things and that mass of crap have like these disparate behaviors that you have to think about. Like, okay, I know the goblin's going to move like this and the owl moves like that. Whereas yeah. if you came across a randomly generated room and it was like, okay, here's goblins and plants. Right. And you're like, okay, you know, I can deal with this more cognitively or more easily <laughs> because, yeah. uh, you know, I know that there's these two patterns that I have to watch out for. And I think it would promote a little bit more kind of recognizing uh, some interesting combinations, right? Like, oh man, I got this room and it was like goblins and great owls and it was just really hard. Whereas, you know, right now you're like, oh, I got this room of complete chaos and it was really hard, (laughs) but you don't have any kind of like mental or emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Like you can still get that level of difficulty, but you can make it feel better, like more harmonious and more simple and uh, more responsibility on the player and less just like, yeah, you got a horrible room and took a bunch of damage. So sucks for you. Yeah. And it also favors 
the players who have played the most have the most knowledge of the game's systems and behaviors and have that information just like stored up and ready to to be consumed in their head you know what i mean because they walk into a room and they'll see like oh i see a glint of orange i know there's a cyclops and i know that behavior is they walk towards you and they throw boulders and you need to remember those boulders bounce off the walls to my left i see a little bit of green and there's a cockatrice and the cockatrice flies near you and shoots ice and i see a spike trap like all this information you have to pull down whereas like you know a less experienced player might be like i've never seen a cyclops before i don't know what to expect there it's way too much but if you'll have only like one or two different types of monsters you can come in and be like okay like I know these guys, so I know what to expect. These other guys are new, and you can kind of, you know, isolate, and you have the ability to triage instead of just panicking. Right, and so I think that what I'm going to try to do at some, at some point, I don't know if it's going to be for this update, it might be in a later update, but I'm going to try to kind of reduce the number of enemies that can be in one room together to, like, keep it almost to, like, maybe two, maybe three types of enemies max, and one or two types of traps as well. And so for, like... The easier rooms, the rooms with a like score that's closer to the start room, they might only have the option of having one enemy and one trap type per room. Have you talked about that before? The the difficulty? I think we mentioned that on the live stream, but I don't know if we've talked about that on the podcast. Um, maybe, but the so the difficulty is really just it's a normal uh, between zero and one that basically says how far away from the entrance are you, and then that normal is used to ramp up. The difficulty and in this case it really just means how many monsters and traps are there in the room kind of like how dense the room is with obstacles right right and here's yeah. another kind of failing of that algorithm right now is that that room or that algorithm doesn't take room size into account so oh, no. <laughs> if you have a small room with a high difficulty score it's going to be really dense yeah Man, I remember earlier versions of the crypt just got stupid because basically what we were doing is we were making the dungeons bigger, the rooms smaller, and the monsters more dense. And it was just like this exponential, like that's the difficulty cliff. That's exactly what that is, right? That we've talked about ever since Onslaught, uh, the original with the green dragon, (laughs) where it's like, you know, the game is rising in difficulty, rising, and the player's like, it's cool, it's cool, I'm with you, this is good. And then it's like, cliff, (laughs) hit a brick wall. (laughs) You go tumbling to your death. Yeah, too much. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyways, it's um, it's interesting how much work and thought really needs to go into composing. You know, what are really simple scenarios? You know, I mean, we're not even talking about something like uh, a side-scrolling platformer where you have to deal with like height and range and things like that. I mean, gravity. In all things considered. The rooms in a wizard's lizard are actually pretty simple, but even for how simplistic they are, they could really use you know a lot more thoughtfulness in terms of comp- composition. Yeah, I think we still to this day have a bug where it is possible for you to get a room that has a push button that you have to step on to open the doors, and that button could be completely surrounded by static spikes. Yes, I was talking about that earlier, okay. and that's what the heuristics-based uh, approach to trap placement would would fix yeah i mean that in in general is is bad like the clustering you're just kind of throwing of uh, stuff together can feel kind of bad but that's specific scenario where it's like there's really no way for you to do this without taking damage like that's exactly what we want to avoid right right and the heuristics approach would actually solve that you could say you get minus a bajillion points if you're (laughs) within one tile of a switch button 
yeah for trap placement and then it would pretty much guarantee that you would never see that because there's always more open spots than there are traps and so there would just never be a scenario where the tile right next to a push button would be the optimal place to put a trap with the heuristics in place did you ever use infinity when you were writing javascript oh all the time I would sometimes do that or like, you know, if there was something kind of heuristic or just in that kind of ballpark like that, I'd be like, well, I want to make sure this doesn't get used at all. So it's infinity. Right. <laughs> Can't possibly think, be less than something else. I feel like we ran into an issue using infinity one time. And so I, I kind of stopped. Oh, I think I know what that was is um, there was some reason that the that particular bit of data needed to live in the world of JSON or just like the the transfer uh from one part of the code to another and it was like infinity what are you talking about like i expected a a, a real number (laughs) uh c sharp actually has a really interesting kind of counter to that i think i was gonna Uh, ask you about that next they have a property on the types called like max value and so for an integer for example or a float you could say like float dot max value or something you can set that yourself no you don't set it you could use it because i see you pull it those data types have a max value yeah i was gonna say (laughs) yeah (laughs) it should be predefined yeah it is like a so like a 32-bit integer has a maximum value right and so instead of using infinity you can say int 32 dot max value yeah and then that will be you know some I i forget what it is it's probably like 2 billion or whatever it is you know yeah uh, which essentially will have the same effect. Yeah. Uh, in, in, you know, in 99.999% of cases. Yeah. It always feels slightly risky. Like when you do that, it, it feels almost like a, like a callback where you're like, yeah, that'll get called back, right? <laughs> Should. <laughs> I don't know why I wouldn't, but it might not. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, I think that that, that approach works a little better because then you're dealing with a concrete number one way or the other. Yeah. And you're not dealing with, you know, infinity is not, it's a really abstract concept. And yes. it, you can't really do math on infinity. Right. I yeah, mean, you, it, it becomes this garbage value at some point where you're like, oh, okay, I can't really use that. Like it has, it, it makes sense logically in this code that I wrote, but like now, like, you know, JSON or some data point, like now I needed something usable. Yeah. Anyways, interesting stuff. Um, I'm really uh, trying to get back into heuristics as a, you know, as a way to basically do anything. Right. You know, I feel like there were too many times where my solution to procedural generation has been, well, put all these options in a bucket and pick a random one. Yeah. And that's easy, but there's all kinds of problems with it. And uh, I really find myself wanting to go back. And for almost any case where I would take a random bucket and pick something, I almost would rather, you know, use a heuristic approach to it. Yeah. We decided that a long time ago as pertains to game design that distributed is almost always more useful than actually random. You know, it's really tempting because you have, like in the programming environment, you've got this system that can easily provide you a random number and that can make almost anything more exciting instantly. So it's, it's really tempting to use it, to overuse it, right? And it does have its purpose, but uh, when it comes to game design specifically, it's uh, it's often kind of lazy and leads to like sloppy results, right? Right. Yep. So you've been doing a lot of uh, Unity stuff as well. You did a stream just yesterday, and you did this in the evening, so that uh, a lot of our uh, listeners and uh, 
and friends and supporters could uh, hang out. Yeah, so I think we talked about this before, but you know, we jumped right into the streaming thing just kind of to get it kickstarted. Yeah. And we just picked some times to do it. And um, I think that one thing that I want to make sure is that we don't just decide that that's how it's going to be yeah. and, and go with it, especially with streaming, because streaming is something where, yeah, we can export to YouTube and, and whatnot, but it is best live. Yes. And so it's a thing that, you know, the timing really matters. Right. Like Lost Cast doesn't really matter as much. Like Lost Cast comes out on Tuesdays and we've never really, <laughs> uh, you know, had any real reason to change that just yeah. because, you know, it's kind of asynchronous. Yeah. We publish th- it and then people listen to it at their leisure. I think our uh, our reason for Tuesday was because it's not Monday. That was it. Because <laughs> like we defaulted to Monday, but we were like, man, Monday is just, it's sometimes hard to get going. Yeah, like you know how it is. Monday is sometimes like you're just catching up on email and maybe you're recovering from the weekend or whatever. And um, for some reason, it was just like the conversations weren't coming, you know? So yeah. we pushed it off a day and that was like, oh, no, Tuesday. But these days I'm kind of thinking like we should probably actually publish the podcast on Wednesdays. Wednesday seems to be the day to do things like that. Sure. But whatever. But that's pretty easy, right? Like, yeah. that doesn't really necessitate a change to our recording schedule nah. or really create any more or less work for you. Yeah, and honestly, I would say that even if we did start publishing on Wednesday, we should still probably keep recording on Tuesdays like we are, just because, like, it's kind of nice. Because, you know, any day we record, I have to have, like, this two-hour block of just recording and organizing and getting files together and crap, right? And then, like, if I don't have to edit in that same day, that's nice, because that's going to take at least another hour or two. And, like, you know how it is. It's, it's a, what is it, death by a million cuts, you know? Like, like my Tuesdays disappear pretty regularly you know yeah where i'm like you know okay the podcast is done and published it's five o'clock how's that possible <laughs> like, what happened i can't get any work done yeah yeah so uh yeah unity stuff has been going pretty well um the stream i think went pretty well at, in the evening i think it was a little bit more chat activity which was kind of nice to see yeah so that was really good um a lot of the stuff that we've just been talking about uh, was stuff I was kind of working on over the stream. I was working on dungeon uh, layout generation. Um, so that was kind of fun. And uh, you can catch that episode, yesterday's episode on YouTube if oh, you like. Yep. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Nice. That was number six, wasn't it? It was number six, yeah. Wow. Look at you. Six weeks. Going going on two months here of streaming. Wow. I've done like two or three <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up with you. <laughs> I'm like, I'll stream something. Uh, can't. Yeah. Well, I think last week you did the listening party for Joshua Morse. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that was the reason I think my energy was sapped out for the Friday stream is I knew that the next day and uh, the next day I had to do a live stream for the listening party. And um, I've never done that before. So I was really nervous about it. Um, I don't think there's any video for that or that we're even going to try because it went for like, was it two hours? Something like that, yeah. At least an hour and a half, yeah. And that's kind of a thing where, I don't know, it's not a very good candidate for YouTube just because there isn't a lot of visual stuff going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of interactivity, people talking, you know, it's kind of like that's almost exclusively a live event. Exactly. Whereas the the, the streams that you do on Unity, it's almost like um, for a lot of it, your audience is, you know, youtube or people watching now it's more of like you kind of uh prepare it for consumption later which makes a lot of sense because like yeah 
you could see, I could totally see someone just like, yeah, I'm going to program now. I'm just going to put that on. Like I missed a stream earlier. I'm just going to have it, treat it like a podcast, basically. Right. A visual cast. Yeah. Hopefully that's uh, how it comes across. I, I do try to kind of keep up the, the talking right. <laughs> uh, while I'm, while I'm programming. Cause I don't know. It's hard for me because I don't really watch game development streams. So I don't really have a good sense of what people want or expect. You know, I can only kind of think about what I would want uh, right. from something like that. And like uh, I've popped into a game development stream here and there and, and you know, I've seen people kind of like just coding. And I know that, you know, like some people like Notch, I think that what he does is he doesn't do a lot of interactivity. Yeah. Uh, he'll kind of just put it on and he'll just start coding. You know, he'll get in his zone and maybe he doesn't interact with chat at all. I don't really know specifically, but like the impression I get is that there's a, people that do, you know, basically just watch me code in the zone. Yeah, I've seen um, some of the live streamers I follow these days are like uh, Jonathan Blow, um, and his strategy, it kind of depends. Sometimes he'll kind of look at questions while he's going, but a lot of times he'll kind of save everything for the end or do like a separate stream just for Q&A afterwards, Hmm. which is kind of interesting. And, you know, everybody's different. You should go with whatever works for you personally as a broadcaster, whatever your audience wants and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, it's probably best at, at the point that we're at where we don't really have a big you know, sizable audience or anything, um, just to kind of test it out and see, see what fits. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, if I was, uh, man, Oh, if I were doing, um, just coding and not interacting, I probably would get more actual code done, but I kind of like the, uh, kind of treating it sort of like a podcast where it's a little bit, a little bit of coding and a little bit of explanation and talking about what I'm doing. Because for me, um, that's kind of what I would want to see yeah. uh, as a, a viewer. And also, I kind of like it because when I'm working on something like procedural generation, it kind of helps me organize my thoughts right? Uh, a little bit um, with regards to like what I'm working on. What I kind of like about, um, say, like when I did the art stream is um, talking about what you're doing is beneficial because you're kind of constantly explaining why. Right. And what that does is it reinforces your reasons and it helps your own understanding because there's a lot of things in life that you just do and you don't necessarily know why. They might be bad things that you do, like that's a horrible habit that you have, or they might be really great things that you do, like, you know, a a cooking uh, method or approach that you use. And you're like, I don't know why it's good. It's just good. I just do it, you know? But like talking it out sometimes, you can be like, oh, there it is. That's why I do it this way is because XYZ, right? Yeah, it's always good to examine your assumptions, I think. Yeah. That's something that you and I actually did a lot of when we first started working together was, you know, basically take uh, whatever kind of, you know, habits we had about coding and we had different opinions and we would talk out why, you know, you basically have to make a case to the other person about why you want to do things a certain way. Yeah, and it was interesting when there were times where neither one of us really had a particular reason, you know. I'd yeah. be like, uh, you know, I I do this camel case, and um, why do I prefer that over underscores? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> because could, I'm going to keep doing it the way I'm doing it until you have like a compelling argument to change, basically. Right. That works. Yeah, that's that's uh, good enough. That's kind of funny how like these days that's that's not really an issue. Like, I mean, it's it's conceivable that I could come into your project at some point and start writing some C sharp. So I guess we might want to talk about it at some point, but like what I'm going to do if that ever happens is just do it the way you're doing it. (laughs) That's right. You don't touch my code. That's right. You know, I mean, like (laughs) 
that's the most important thing about uh, code style and, and, and that kind of thing is consistency, right? I think that's actually, uh, I mean, it's, it's true for code, absolutely, but it's true for a lot of other things, you know? Yeah. I think that art uh, consistency is very important. Yep. And, uh, and and also in game design, consistency is really important. Yeah, that's probably, honestly, the, um, the game design is going to be, especially for our next project, is going to be... Um, well, actually, we, we have a director now, right? Do we talk about that? How you're like, you're the director of the next game? Uh, how I'm your boss. Well, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's like, especially with the next project, it's like, you know, you're developer, I'm artist, and those two areas are going to be pretty consistent because the there's only one person working with them at any given time for the most part, right? But the game design is where we both want to have a voice and we kind of come together working on stuff. And um, I forget where I was reading this, but it's basically like, the more by committee you create, the more kind of mild and uninteresting your decisions are going to be. You know, like you almost want things to be more opinionated. Um, and the analogy that I saw was like, picture, um, picture two circles of, this, of the exact same size, right? Almost like a pair of uh, like circular eyeglasses. That might not be the most interesting visually, right? And if you raise the size of one circle and the other circle is smaller and you now have like one of those ye old time looking bikes that's more visually appealing in a lot of ways and obviously this is not just a visual thing it's also like an, an analogy right like with the game design you might want to emphasize one mechanic and downplay another just to have that contrast but if you're designing everything by committee you might just go the middle road and be like yeah you know it's not that exciting right right yeah and i think that that's something that we've suffered from before where you know, both of us would just kind of jump into the code base and start adding, you know, <laughs> new pieces of content or new items or new game functionality. Yeah. Uh, without really either of us having the entire vision in our head. I mean, we both kind of had a, a rough idea of where a project was going. Right. Um, but, you know, we didn't, neither of us were like, okay, this is the final vision and where does this particular change fit? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it like, makes a lot of sense. We talked about this, actually, um, when we started working on our prototypes, how, you know, we were essentially each prototype was going to have, like, a quarterback or a director. Yeah. And then we would come together and decide which prototype was going to get worked on. And then the person who was kind of championing that prototype would then become the director for that particular project. Yeah. And um, this next project didn't actually have a champion. So we kind of had to talk it out. Right. Luckily, that's never really uh, been a problem. Um, I was actually going to mention this. I f totally forgot to put this in the show notes um, or send a link to you or anything, but there was this post-mortem. There was a uh, another two or maybe more person um, game company that shut itself down. And they looked, based on their numbers, they looked to be about the same size as us, like, you know, ballpark-ish, right? Right. And uh, it was interesting. It seems to be like it wasn't necessarily lack of success that shut them down. It was kind of like creative differences, you know? You'd be like, <laughs> you'd be like Matt, I just want to make uh, games about ponies now. It's going to be unicorn and pony, <laughs> like, simulations, pony farms. And I'm like... <laughs> Jeff, I'm, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, that would be a tough decision, wouldn't it? Just to to shut your whole like imagine shutting all of LDG LDG down just because it's like you didn't agree with something I some opinion I had or whatever. Yeah. I'm not saying all that what I'm not saying that's all that shut this company down. I'm saying that like just the creative differences alone were palpable enough to have uh, an impact. You know? Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's um. 
I think it's a real danger, honestly, because I think a lot of people get into creative fields like this to realize their own creative vision. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's it's hard. I mean, even you and I are pretty compatible when it comes to that kind of stuff. And yeah. I think there's a lot of give and take. But, you know, there are definite times where we are of different opinions about uh, the direction that things should go. Yeah, definitely. And that's but, why it's going to help us to have, like, you know, you're going to be making the shots, right? Calling the shots. And then for the next, like, to balance that for the next game, like, you know, we'll switch hats or whatever. Right. Yeah. I feel like, though, most of the time it's been, like, we disagree over implementation or kind of micro concepts. Yeah. We rarely ever disagree over, like, kind of high-level uh, studio direction kind of decisions. It should be a game with a lizard and a wizard. We're like, yes, that's yes. correct. <laughs> yes, it should. <laughs> yes, yes, it should. <laughs> there should be swords. Ab- yes, absolutely. Yes, and, correct. and magic. There should be definitely be magic. Yes, absolutely. Fireballs. Uh, Correct. Yes. <laughs> lightning bolts, please. Absolutely. It's more, more, more lightning yeah. bolts. What about a unicorn? I'm like, mm. no. Mm. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, not so much. Disagreements. Yes. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes if I can find it, and uh, if interesting enough, we might talk about it because lots of good stuff. I, lo- I always love it when companies are really open and forthcoming like we try to be you know like they'll show you as much of uh, the behind the scenes numbers as they can they'll be very honest and upfront about how things went and it's uh, it helps to demystify indie game development and just you know game development and entrepreneurship and all that good stuff i feel like i should go reread that i, I skimmed that article i think the company is called game oven game oven yep that was it and uh i got far enough through my skimming that i realized that they were a mobile game development shop you were like done yeah and i did and you know obviously that's kind of a snap judgment on my part and i should probably go back and reread it just to see what i can glean from it i mean but okay well as i say like at that point i was kind of like well the things that i know and assume about the mobile game industry like i'm not surprised they're shutting down and my assumption (laughs) was that okay it has something to do with the fact that they just weren't able to make enough money on mobile which is like hey no big surprise there. Hey, mobile sucks. Hey, mobile which sucks. Which is the conclusion we came to a couple of years ago, right? Right. Um, I think it's interesting, though, because, like, you know, we were a mobile game company, for better or for worse, for, for the most part. Like, you know, making HTML5 games for a long time, they can easily be on desktop just as much as they were on mobile. But, like, we were gearing them towards mobile, you know? And, like, Lava Blade, even though we... Like it's playable on mobile or uh, on desktop. It was like it felt like a mobile game, you know. It had the big oversized buttons and the kind of simple graphics and um, very very mobile friendly. So, but and like we changed from a primarily mobile company company probably to a very desktop focused game company. Yes, yeah. and when I say mobile sucks, I mean it doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that it's a bad idea. It just means that for the particular use cases that we have and the budgets and the resources and the constraints. And all that stuff, you know, we have always felt that mobile wasn't the best direction for us. Yeah, and like mobile games are great. Mobile is a good platform. All we mean is that it's really hard <laughs> to to make an impact on mobile, like to find success on mobile. It's tough. It's yeah. so competitive. I mean, it's really competitive on desktop as well, but I do feel like it's a little easier uh, than mobile for yeah. kind of underfunded indie studios. <laughs> I think that's all for this week. So thanks for listening. As always, join us on the forums for more discussion at forum.losticatgames.com. Hey, don't forget to tell a friend or maybe tell two friends. 
and be like, I listened to this awesome podcast <laughs> by these two dudes, and uh, you should listen to it as well. These two be... schmucks. <laughs> right. That would be much appreciated. Um, so, uh, sorry if you missed Waveform Collection listening party. We'll probably do something like that again at some point, uh, but the good news is that Waveform Collection is now available, so make sure to go get it. Uh, this is Turtle Dance. It's a remix by Dini Lab, who is the lead composer on a very popular video game called La Tail. So you know it's going to be good. I've actually teased this song before on the podcast, but I, I didn't play the whole thing. And uh, now you're going to get the whole thing. So uh, it's really good. Hope you enjoy it. Ship it. I were <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know you you have not yet uh, earned the right to correct me <laughs> oh no i know I, I just corrected myself i know i just i still screw up and the pressure is on that's right <laughs> <laughs>